Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com or on Twitter, at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. We made it, Jordan. We did it. Uh, the Supreme Court issued its final opinions of the 2020 term. Yes, 2020 term. The 2021 term does not start until October. On Thursday, the court issued its final two opinions in a voting rights case, Brnovich versus DNC, and a free speech case, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta. In the first case, Brnovich, the court upheld two Arizona voting laws, one on so-called ballot harvesting and another prohibiting out-of-precinct voting. In doing so, the 6-3 court put a tough test forward for bringing challenges to voting restrictions under what's left of the Voting Rights Act. And in the AFPF case, the court invalidated a California law requiring charities to turn over the names and addresses of their largest donors. Both of these cases were 6-3 along ideological lines. So to talk about those cases and the term as a whole is the ACLU's National Legal Director, David Cole. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So before we get into the cases, let's talk about Justice Breyer. Uh, We're recording this just before noon on Friday, and we've got no announcement from the justice that he's stepping down. It it is one of the times where we we tend to see justices stepping down after opinions are announced, but uh, this term's a little wacky already, so why not uh, just disturb that precedent as well? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if we heard this afternoon that he's going to step down. Well, then let's get this thing over with so we can all uh, prepare our hot takes. This for is just- uh, about 11.07 a.m. on the East Coast <laughs> yeah. anyway, just to mark this historical event. No, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying I have any, I have zero inside information, um, but I, uh, you know, th- this afternoon would be a, an appropriate time for a justice to step down. The, 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 the morning, this morning were the last orders of the term, and so, you know, the, the work of the court is done, and that Typically, that's when they announce their resignations. Well, Jordan, you want to jump into some of the cases here? Sure. So maybe we could work backwards, David. Obviously, we got two of the biggest cases of the term on its last day of opinions in the Brnovich case and the Americans for Prosperity case. And it seems that you have an interesting perspective in particular because the ACLU uh, took a position in the latter case that perhaps some people might think would go against the type of what the progressive position might be, but maybe you can explain why that's incorrect and give kind of your overall take on the day as a whole and whether you actually think it was a complete loss for the progressive side or whether there's more nuance to it than that. Uh, well, with respect to the Americans for Prosperity Foundation case, definitely more nuanced than that. Um, we did file an amicus brief uh, in support of American Prosperity Foundation, along with um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and a number of other um, liberal organizations. And 
The reason is that the um, the right that they were asserting there is a right that every uh, organization and every citizen should care about, and that is the right to associate um, with like-minded people, to advocate your points of views, uh, and to do so without having to um, uh, notify uh, the government or, or the public of that in situations where you know that uh, might uh, redound to your detriment. Um, and and that, that right goes back to the NAACP in the 1950s and 60s in the South, uh, where uh, those who were opposed to that organization sought to get their membership lists, and there was a real concern that that would chill associational freedoms. So we supported the challenge. Uh, the, the, this law was extremely overbroad. It required any charity that worked in California to provide its top donors to the Attorney General of California under a scheme in which the Attorney General of California did not keep the information confidential and it was often leaked to the public. Uh, and the California Attorney General had a very weak justification for making this demand in the first place. They said, well, they want to investigate fraud in charities. But there's no, they made no showing that you need this information to investigate frauds uh, in charities. If you think there's a fraud in a charity, uh, you can subpoena this information. It, it gets turned over to the IRS in any event. Um, so it exists. It's not going to disappear. Uh, and the mere fact of receiving it doesn't tell you anything about whether anyone is engaged in fraud. So they made no showing that it was necessary, and it was very overbroad. Quite distinct, I think, and this is the, the mistake that I think many of the critics make, quite distinct from disclosure requirements in the context of campaign finance. Disclosure requirements in campaign finance are about informing the public about the source of money that goes to particular candidates or their campaigns. The Supreme Court has held that that interest in informing the public is a, a compelling interest and that the least restrictive means of furthering that interest is requiring disclosure. And so, you know, the, the problem with this case was that the California Attorney General could not demonstrate that the, the disclosure here was in, it was related, much less necessary or least restrictive or narrowly tailored to the end of investigating fraud, whereas the court has already held that the interest in the campaign finance context is, in fact, narrowly tailored to a compelling state interest. So it does not call into question efforts to fight dark money in the campaign finance context. And what it does do is protect charities generally, and, the, and people's right to associate with charities without having to disclose that to the government uh, for no good reason. Right. I think uh, that was one reason why we saw so many amicus briefs um, on the issue, not just because they were interested in, you know, the particular issue of donor disclosure laws, which is very important, but because of the implications some feared it might have for election-related disclosure laws. Um, we'll see um, if your prediction is correct that, you know, this doesn't really affect things. Um, Wondering, though, there's a part of the ruling where Justice Thomas joins the three Democratic appointed justice, which actually turns out to be a really popular lineup this year, um, uh, regarding the scope of the Supreme Court's ruling here. So rather than just strike down the law as applied to the two um, groups here who had challenged the law and who had you know, said that they faced harassment and intimidation um, if these disclosures were made public. 
the Supreme Court facially invalidated the law, and Justice Thomas and the Democratic appointees had uh, quite a problem with that. Wondering um, how you know your organization uh, sees that issue. So uh, we didn't address that issue in our in our brief, but um, uh, you know, but I think we are generally in favor of um, uh, interpretations of standing doctrine that allow people to bring First Amendment claims based on the chill um, that a particular practice causes to their, um, you know, to, to their ability to speak freely. And, you know, this goes back to um, the, uh, the, the challenges to surveillance of, um, of anti-war protesters in the 1960s and 1970s. And, uh, and we argued that, you know, the various kinds of surveillance programs directed at anti-war protesters chilled people from being willing to go out into the street and demonstrate as is their right. And the court then said, oh no, you haven't demonstrated a sufficient injury and so we're not even gonna allow you to challenge this surveillance. Um, you know, this, this case I think opens up the possibility uh, that the court will be more open to challenges to surveillance programs that really do chill um, the rights of activists and especially activists on the left, but also activists on the right uh, from engaging in, um, in in political activity that might, you know, uh, bring them, you know, into disfavor with government figures. So then the other case from that same day, the voting rights case, I imagine you think it's, there's less nuance there, right? <laughs> I mean, this was kind of as straightforward as it gets, sort of the classic Republican-Democrat divide. It was even in the title of the case itself, right? RNC against DNC, and that's the way the justices lined up too, isn't it? Yeah, it's disturbing. Uh, it's not. It's not terribly surprising, uh, but it's disturbing that the court lined up the way it did. I mean, you know, I think many people at the beginning of this term thought all the big cases would line up six three, uh, and and I think the actual the big story of the term is that so few cases uh, broke six three, and in, and so few consequential of the big consequential cases broke 6-3, that the court really went out of its way in many, many cases to achieve a broader consensus across partisan lines and did not act in a partisan way. This case, you know, they were not, they were not able to do that. And I, you know, I think it is very disturbing. You know, it's, it is, the, the, the majority decision is not as bad as some of the, uh, the positions that some of the advocates had urged the court to adopt. And some have suggested that, um, Alito's opinion for the majority, which talks about general factors rather than, you know, very rigid tests, was driven by, uh, you know, the unwillingness of Kavanaugh, maybe Barrett, maybe uh, Roberts to join a, a, an even worse opinion. Um, but it's, and, you know, and, and how bad it will be will depend on how it gets implemented by the lower courts. But it's a very disturbing opinion. I think you know the Voting Rights Act was designed to ensure equal opportunity uh, to voters of color, uh, and and in particular, this provision was designed to get at facially neutral practices that have a disparate impact on minority voters. And what Justice Alito's opinion does is make it much much harder for uh, challengers to succeed even where they can demonstrate that a particular practice does indeed have a disparate impact denying equal voting opportunity to minority voters. So, the, and, he, and he does it based on factors 
that are not in the text of the statute. I mean, Justice Alito and the conservatives are, you know, purport to be textualists, purport to interpret the terms of a statute only by its terms, whether they like where it goes or not, but not in this case. The terms of the statute are very open. Justice Kagan's dissent is very powerful uh, in, in this respect, uh, to open to these kinds of disparate impact claims. And the court essentially erected obstacles of its own making, not found in the text of the statute, uh, to, to make it harder for people to bring the challenges to the kinds of laws that we're seeing passed across the country in red states, you know, Georgia, Florida, Texas, right. and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one one thing. I It seemed almost as if the Justice Department kind of anticipated this ruling in Brnovich in its most recent uh, case that it brought against Georgia, because it did kind of avoid this disparate impact claim and instead really focused on um, trying to prove that the intent that was the intent um, of Georgia lawmakers was to, you know, hurt minority voters here. Do you think that's going to be the effect of this ruling is that now, you know, people are really going to have to, you know, look really lean really heavily on intent and, and as opposed to effect? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's often been the case that when you challenge these kinds of practices, you make an intent and an effect argument, but they've that, but the purpose of Section 2 was to say you don't have to show intent in order to show a violation of the law. Um, it's, that is still the case. Uh, Justice Alito says we, we recognize that disparate impact is a claim that you can win on, but the five factors that he lays out makes it very hard to actually win on such a claim. And so, yeah, it'll drive people to make more intentional discrimination claims. Now, it is the case that you know that many of these fact, many of these tests and 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 practices are in, indeed designed to make it harder for minority voters to vote because the Republicans assume that minority voters will not vote for them. Uh, so um, you know, in, in some instances, you will be able to make that showing, but you know they don't usually admit it up front, and so it's hard uh, can be hard to demonstrate. And it seems to me, too, that courts are sometimes hesitant to make that finding that lawmakers actually intended um, to discriminate against minority voters. It's sometimes easier just for a court to say, you know, regardless of what you intended, this was the effect. And that's going to be much harder for them to do. Yes. Um, well, Jordan, unless you wanted to talk any more about Brnovich, um, was wondering if we could move on to one of the term favorites, um, which um, you also participated in, uh, Mahanoy. Can you tell us a little bit about about this case, which thank you very much because it was um, a fun one to cover in an otherwise really heavy term. Yeah, well, it's a fun one to, to argue. Uh, you know, it's a classic ACLU case, uh, teenager uh, who, like every teenager who ever was, uh, was frustrated, uh, you know, at some point and, uh, and expressed her frustration to her friends uh, on a Snapchat. Uh, saying uh, school, cheer, softball, everything. everything. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and that was, uh, went to her, her Snapchat friends only and was designed to disappear in 24 hours. But of course, somebody uh, took a screenshot of it, showed it to the cheerleading coach uh, at her high school, and she was uh, called in, called on the carpet, and kicked off the team for a year. For doing so, uh, we challenged it at the ACLU. We won in the district court. Um, 
the school appealed. We won unanimously um, in the Court of Appeals. Um, the school district took it to the Supreme Court and we won eight to one before the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, it's, it's a case of very good facts in the sense that I think everybody understands that, you know, kids are going to be frustrated, that uh, they're going to express their frustration in ways that might be vulgar, etc., but that when they're on their own time at a convenience store on the weekend, uh, schools shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be regulating, you know, how they how they express their frustration. And kids have to be able to let off steam uh, without fear that the, the, the principal of the school is going to punish them for doing that. And so, um, you know, a huge win, I think, really, for, for 50 million public school students across the country because what the school was arguing was that they should have the same authority to regulate kids' speech outside of school as they have inside school. And they have pretty broad authority to regulate student speech inside school, and they have to, because how else can you run a math class unless you can tell kids you can only talk about math? You can't talk about, you know, last night's TV show or the Boston Red Sox. You gotta talk about math. That's content-based discrimination, but it's okay in the school context. But when you say we should have that same authority over kids when they're outside of school, anytime they're talking to another school uh, person in, in their school, or anytime they're talking about school, well, that's basically all kids talk about is, right? They talk to their <laughs> friends and they talk about school because that's, that's their lives. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, fortunately, um, the court, you know, sent a very strong message that no, you know, that is not the, uh, you know, schools don't have uh, the business in, in sort of monitoring what kids are, you know, saying at convenience stores on the weekend. It did, it left open some, you know, authority of schools to regulate some out of school speech. And we conceded that schools have some authority to regulate some out-of-school speech, bullying, harassment, properly defined threats, cheating, and the like. Um, but, you know, this case had nothing. and had no, There was no bullying, no harassment, no cheating. It was just uh, an expression, a colorful expression of frustration. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, the court really left open some some ways for, for schools to act um, when the speech is off campus. And I think, you know, this touches on something you mentioned about how the vote breakdowns didn't really all come down along 6-3, is that we did see a lot of instances where um, the justices kind of didn't set a test or didn't decide a, a case, um, you know, in order to kind of narrow uh, the ruling and, and the thinking is to get a bigger majority. That didn't seem to be the case here, though, right? Like, it seemed like the court didn't address all of these issues and didn't set a real bright line rule because it was afraid of kind of tying the hands of the court in a way that, you know, can't really project forward into the future. Yeah, I think this was this instance in which, right, you know, the hard questions in the case were, you know, how do you deal with bullying? What's the proper way to define bullying? What's the proper way to define harassment, etc.? Those are actually hard, hard questions. But this was a terrible case to try to decide those questions because the case didn't actually involve anything that was even allegedly about bullying. So, you know, when you read the amicus briefs, and there were many in this case, you know, all the amicus briefs are talking about bullying. This case had nothing to do with bullying, right? And so the court said, you know, when it, when it has nothing to do with bullying, hey, schools, 
recognize that kids need space, that your job is to teach kids tolerance, and one way you teach tolerance is by being tolerant, uh, and that basically outside of school, it's parents' uh, uh, role to, to supervise their kids, not the schools. That was the principal message, message that, it, um, that it sent. And, you know, everybody but Justice Thomas was on board with that message. And yes, it left to the side the question of bullying harassment, as did the court below, as did we in our, um, in our briefs to the, to the court. So, yeah, but I do think, I mean, I think you're, you're right that, you know, on the whole, this, this term, I think the, the court really defied expectations, um, rose above partisan divides, largely in the big cases by um, avoiding broad proclamations and instead resolving cases on narrow grounds. It's a lot easier to get people with different uh, worldviews to agree if they're, you're asking them to agree on a very narrow and specific uh, thing rather than you know some broad proclamation of principle, and so you saw that in the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case, in which we were also involved in Catholic Social Services. Uh, you saw that in California versus Texas, uh, the ACA case. You saw that in the Human Rights case about uh, child slave labor. Um, all those, and and you saw that in in in, in um, BL, the uh, the cheerleader case. All those cases you had. Seven to eight one or nine zero decisions um, reached by resolving cases on you know not a, not trying to resolve all the broad questions in the case but the the narrowest way to resolve the case and that's really you know that's Chief Justice Roberts' mantra minimalism um, so you know I think many people thought when Justice Barrett took uh, Justice Ginsburg's seat just the the Roberts court was over I don't think so I mean I think you're seeing the continuing influence of the chief in urging the court to um, try to get to yes uh, by uh, deciding cases in a minimal way. David, I'm wondering if I could throw out maybe something that pushes back against that idea a little bit and get your take on it, because you're talking about the question of getting to yes, but the Supreme Court has discretion over which cases it takes, right? And so even the fact of the cases that are coming to the court now, right, could be a feature of its composition. Like take the ACA case, for example, right? It broke seven to two, more than a bare majority rules to uphold Obamacare. But at least as I understood it heading into the case, this was a lawsuit that even conservatives who supported prior iterations were almost laughing out of court. And so it's a long way of saying, you know, do we have to look at what cases are actually coming to the court, you know, where are they not just moderating between views that are further to the right than they otherwise would have been? You know, to some extent, look, this is, there's no question this is a conservative court. Um, but, uh, and, and that will, of course, uh, determine what kinds of cases they take and what kinds of cases they don't take. But I think there's also, um, you know, thus far anyway, you have seen a conservative court that has not flexed its muscle in the way that it could if it acted in a political way. And I think that's because the justices, most of the justices on both sides, recognize that it is important to the legitimacy of the court that it um, not be perceived as a political actor. You know, nobody, nobody, uh, you know, goes after Mike uh, Mitch McConnell if he acts in a partisan way. That's his job to act in a partisan way, right? Um, but but if the if the justices acted in a partisan way, 
uh, that really does call into question why we give them so much power with life tenure. Uh, we give them so much power with life tenure because we expect them to decide cases on the basis of law, not politics, to rise above partisan politics. And I know that lots of people are skeptical and cynical about the possibility of doing that. It is hard. It is especially hard in a world that is as divided on uh, major issues as ours is on partisan lines. Um, but I think, you know, this term they did their best to do that. I think last term they did as well. So, you know, last term we saw uh, them, uh, you know, striking down an abortion restriction in, in, in Louisiana. We saw them extending uh, LGBT uh, rights, uh, a, a, you know, dramatically protecting dreamers. Um, you know, this term, uh, you know, we saw them protecting uh, speech rights. We saw them ruling more often for criminal defendants in criminal cases than for the government in a, in, a, in a variety of constitutional and statutory cases. One of my favorites is the case about the, the, how you interpret the computer fraud criminal statute. And there the government was a advancing a very broad interpretation of this statute that would make it a crime for people to get on the, you know, their, their computers, go onto a website and violate the terms of service. That would be a crime, even though you don't even read the terms of service of the website you're on. Um, and the court rejected that six to three, six to three, right? Six to three. But what was the six to three? It was the three liberals joined by the three Trump appointees. And I just think that is great when you see, you know, totally confounding all of the, you know, all the critics that, you know, and, 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 and even the hopes, right? The Republicans, I think many Republicans hoped they'd have reliable, you know, conservative votes from these six justices in every case. And, you know, liberals feared that you'd have reliable, conservative, partisan votes from these six justices in every... If, 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 if a, a, a legislative body is six to three you know, Republican, Democrat, you know how every issue is going to get resolved. But in the Supreme Court, you do not know that. And that's a good thing. So that, that I think, um, is certainly true for the cases that were argued this term. Did we see the same kind of, kind of going along, getting along to go along, or whatever that phrase is? Um, did we see that happening on the shadow docket as well? Or, or my sense is that it was quite a bit more divided. Yeah, much less uh, on the shadow docket. And I think that's, that's, that's part of why we should be concerned about the shadow docket, right? They, you know, they're deciding cases very quickly. They're, they don't have full briefing and argument. They don't have the opportunity to kind of, you know, think through them in a more careful way. You know, it's also the case that they often don't even issue decisions. Um, and so, the, you know, the good thing about that is that you don't create bad, create bad precedents when they make bad decisions. The bad thing about that is if, you know, that it's the requirement to give reasons that is the most, you know, the, the biggest sort of disciplining uh, uh, thing. So, but even there, you, you know, on, on the moratorium, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the challenge to the eviction moratorium, uh, the court turned that down five to four, turned down the, the effort to, to uh, you know, stop the eviction moratorium. And Kavanaugh and Roberts voted with the liberals uh, to, to reject that. So, you know, you have, um, you know, you have instances here and there uh, where there's um, that, that same kind of, you know, 
conduct in on, on the shadow docket. But I, I would agree, less often, and that's one of the problems with the shadow docket. I think, you know, you have to, there are going to be emergency situations where you have to act, right? but I think they've used it in contexts where there really aren't uh, emergencies. And I think they've, um, you know, uh, failed to justify their actions in many instances. Right. It's kind of amazing that all the entire body of law that happened with regard to COVID restrictions happened entirely on the shadow docket. Um, and so I, that is just astounding to me that we didn't have a single case really where the justices had briefing and argument, um, you know, kind of the classic way that we think of justices really deciding cases. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting given how infrequently the justices explained themselves that in the eviction case you mentioned, David, I was surprised that Kavanaugh took that opportunity to write since his explanation wasn't even exactly a legal one. It was almost more of a political explanation. And so I wondered if why he didn't just take advantage of the usual not expecting opinions to kind of just leave his vote there. But anyway, more explanations are good, if only to be able to see what people are thinking, whether it's correct or not, right? Yeah, it was a kind of equitable, pragmatic consideration. And that's, you know, that on a on an injunction, when you're asking for an injunction or lifting an injunction, that is a those are appropriate considerations. And he 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 will often do that. He'll often, you know, offer a kind of a short, you know, kind of trying to sort of come down the middle, narrowly, you know, explain why he's doing something in a way that, you know, won't won't alienate his, his you know folks who who uh, who are his friends, but will also explain, you know, why he's why he's taking a a, deci- a, a vote that they might otherwise not understand. Well, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really appreciate you coming on. Before um, we let you go, is there anything that we haven't talked about the term that you think is really important um, for people as we as we enter the summer and as we enter next term with some really blockbuster cases and issues? Well, you know, I think next term is really going to be a much bigger test of whether the court can, in fact, um, rise above partisan divide. I mean, they've they've already got abortion uh, and the right to carry concealed weapons on the docket. And they are, you know, it's quite possible they're going to have affirmative action as well. And so those are instances in which it's going to be very hard for the court to not break down on partisan lines. So, you know, we'll see. I, I also think that, you know, um, it's way too early to tell sort of, you know, what Justice Barrett is like, what Justice Kavanaugh is like. Uh, they just haven't been on the court long enough to get a real sense. But, um, you know, I do think we can we can say uh, that that neither of them can be kind of lumped in the in, in the Alito and Thomas camp, um, that you have Alito and Thomas that are just consistently, you know, on, on uh, the sort of originalist uh, uh, right uh, right side of the court, and then you have the three liberals. But the rest of them, you know, Gorsuch sometimes jumps joins the liberals. Uh, um, uh, Kavanaugh does. Barrett uh, has uh, on occasion, uh, and, and Roberts. So. You know, if you're a liberal arguing to the court, you you still have uh, you know a number of po- possible uh, voices to try to, uh, to to speak to, and and I think that's that's important. I, you know, Chief Justice Roberts said when he was being confirmed that you know it's really important that you know for the legitimacy of the whole process that when lawyers go up there, they believe that they have 
you know, that the court has not already decided the case, that the court will not just vote because of who they are or who appointed them, but will, you know, hear and listen to the arguments. And, you know, I think this term they did that um, for the most part. And, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. I also think it's important that, you know, that the public uh, stay tuned, that the public pay attention, that, um, that people um, criticize them when they don't do that and, and, and praise them when they do do that because um, the court is not immune from, uh, from the sort of, you know, its assessment by the public at large. Great. Thanks so much. That was a um, really wonderful kind of breakdown of the term and really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on that. Well, nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. Well, that was great to talk with David Kimberly. You know, I, I could really tell he was enjoying saying <laughs> after securing that well-earned 8-1 victory. So good for him. Hope he enjoys the summer. What else is going on? Could we possibly have anything else to talk about? Well, I just wanted to mention that the uh, the Presidential Commission on Supreme Court Packing, although that's definitely not its official title, um, met uh, recently. I think one thing to note is we talked a lot with David about, you know, these unique vote breakdowns and how the court really didn't come out um, 6-3 on a lot of the, the really big cases, only really uh, coming down that way in a few of the really consequential cases. And I think one thing that I've heard from people is that that sort of takes the sales out of um, these ideas of court packing or, um, you know, kind of fudging with the court's jurisdictional rules. But we'll have to see if, um, I don't know, there really weren't any wind in those sails anyway, were there? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if it's any uh, solace to someone who doesn't like court packing, it was never going to do anything anyway. So, uh, but again, it's political, so it's more about having something to say to justify you wanted to do anyway, so... If this is that, then go for it. (laughs) So cynical, Jordan. So cynical. Um, On that note, um, thank you for listening. And you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news or not news at news.bloomberglaw.com. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.